The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host, and I have with me in the studio today our President Emeritus and my co-pastor at Antioch Presbyterian Church, Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. Always good to be here. We are going through another edition of our Faith in Practice segment where I bring listener questions to Dr. Piper. But before we dive in, Dr. P., would you please open us with a word of prayer? Happy to. Glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, you who are exalted on high, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who has turned his face toward us in grace and revealed himself to us, above all, uh, in the word through uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, as we uh, come today to uh, think about questions theological and practical, uh, that your spirit would indeed illumine our understanding and give a clarity of thought and speech, cause us to be useful, Lord, for the edification of all who hear it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. We have a lot of good questions today, treating some of our favorite topics, the Sabbath, worship, uh, psalm singing, um, the, the nature of Christ's person and work, uh, pastoral ministry, vocation, and all of these things. But before we, we get into them, I want to give you an opportunity to speak to, even if just very briefly, uh, two very pressing matters before uh, PCA presbyteries this season. Uh, at our last General Assembly, and I'll be talking about this on our denominational debrief, uh, which should be coming out in the next couple of days. At our last General Assembly, the, um, the Assembly voted to present two overtures uh, for BCO amendments to the presbyteries of the denomination. And from what I understand, already 12 or 13 presbyteries have voted on them, and I think um, 10 have voted in favor of one of the overtures, Overture 37, and um, 9 have voted in favor of Overture 23, and that leaves, I think, three presbyteries that have voted against uh, 23 and two which have voted against 37. I think that's the current... Uh, number, you know, that changes week to week as different presbyteries are meeting and, and taking votes. But um, you were on Overtures Committee, I know it was a while ago, but do you have any particular comments or encouragements to the brothers who might be listening now and thinking about whether or not they should vote for these things? Uh, yes, Zach, I'll speak to it briefly. A um, little background material on the procedure. Uh, the Presbyterian Church of America has a book of church order uh, that's part of our Constitution and it governs the qualifications of office bearers in the church uh, and their uh, examinations with respect to being placed into office. And because the last uh, two or three years, our denomination has been really troubled uh, by uh, a very small minority that advocate that uh, a man with the same sex attraction it's referred to technically as side B homosexuality, that such a man, even though he has this attraction, uh, can serve as an uh, office bearer, a minister, a ruling elder, a deacon in the church, particularly in the Presbyterian Church in America. The denomination did a study report that came back and said no to that, uh, that if a person is identifying himself in this way, 
that he's not fit uh, for office. There's a difference between struggling with sin, and we might tag that question on to this discussion right here. Yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. do that. Uh, Struggling with sin and being marked by your sin. So this identification, self-identification, I am a homosexual Christian. People have said, I'm a child abuser Christian, I am a drunk Christian, a drunkard Christian or whatever. The person's not saying he's practicing those things, but he's identifying himself with a nature. And these people go on to say that their nature is uh, of sin but not sin. So they deny that their homosexual attraction is, in fact, sinful. And the study report said it is. Uh, but in order to get that report answered, because study reports have no authority whatsoever. And uh, so in order to get that report with some teeth in it, we had a number of overtures uh, seeking to amend our Book of Church order with respect to qualifications for office and examination for office. And so these are the two overtures that Zach uh, mentioned. They have to be passed by a majority of the first general assembly that adopts them. Then they have to be passed by two-thirds, two-thirds of, our of presbyteries. the presbyteries. And then back to the assembly. So it's a, it's a careful way to change uh, uh, our Constitution. Uh, both of these, I think, are necessary. Now, there's been some conservatives who early on wrote against the second one, 30-something, right? 37? Yeah. Uh, or both of them, saying they didn't go far enough and they actually would do more damage. And initially, one of the men that would be affected by these, who is kind of the leader of the same-sex attracted group, uh, kind of left the assembly, you know, ah, this is not going to affect me. Later on, he wrote that it would. Um, But when he said that at first, and that caused some conservatives to say, well, this doesn't go far enough. There there was a stronger uh, amendment uh, before the committee, but the amendment we passed doesn't simply focus on same-sex attraction problems, but any other identifying sin. And two verbs are used, confessedly or by identification. And so, or by 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 reputation or identification. And that's the language that they don't like. They're saying, well, if somebody has a reputation, maybe it's, it's not a true reputation. And it's playing word games at that point. Um, so it's not just this, and it's, it's very important. Uh, we've got this qual- these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that most examinations committee f- pretty much ignore. And actually the language of 37 pushes us back to have to examine a man with respect to his finances, his anger, um, his reputation, lots of other areas. And it, I think this is long overdue. I would encourage uh, our listeners who want a good, detailed examination and why you should vote for these is to get the um, MP3s from the latest Gospel Reformation Network conference that was held last month here in Greenville. And uh, John Payne uh, spoke on the first one, why we should adopt that, and Rick Phillips on the second. One of the things that Dr. Phillips was very useful. He says this promotes unity in the church and not disunity. So I think it's very important for the future of our denomination that we adopt these and hope we will. You want to follow up anything on that? I have one comment, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but one of the 
one of the objections to the overtures published on the, the National Partnership email list is that they are not clear enough, and they they use terms that have an elastic meaning in our culture and our society. And in this particular discourse about homosexuality and sin and same-sex attraction and the like, and they say that these um, these two changes to the BCO will weaken the BCO by bringing in confusion and and misunderstanding and and. Um, are not they're not going to promise consistent application from presbytery to presbytery, and to that I would say, okay, well, um, we should get rid of good faith subscription then, because there's no consistent application of that presbytery to presbytery. But conservatives actually, some conservatives and good friends of ours have a similar concern about these. They look at these two overtures, and the question they're asking is, are these overtures, are these amendments to our constitution going to serve as useful tools for pursuing the peace and purity of the church, or are they going to introduce loopholes that compromise the peace and purity of the church? And when I read these things, um, I, I think it's the former. I think it's very clearly the former, that these are going to give us useful tools. They're going to be useful instruments for pursuing the peace and purity of the church. And in fact, I believe the case then for um, for tightening our standards, I should say, on who can serve an ordained office in the PCA. Um, the case for that is going to be much stronger as a result of introducing these changes than, than otherwise would be today. But um, that's my one well, comment. And at the end of the day, uh, the whole thing boils down to the integrity of men. And, and Zach mentions good faith subscription. Uh, some Presbyterians really couldn't care less. And so... Uh, I don't care how strong the language would be. There are going to be presbyteries that are going to refuse to apply it. And if not whole presbyteries, there are going to be some men in positions of influence in presbyteries that are going to just ignore this. I mean, we see it with the with the diaconesses issue. And one, one of the ways out of, of um, excluding women from the diaconate is they don't ordain any deacons and they just commission, um, you know, people in, in positions of service that they call... Uh, diaconesses and deacons, but without ordination. And and again, that's just flaunting the very uh, standards that we labor so diligently to um, to erect at the national level. But anyway, I don't want to get bogged down in that. Uh, it's it merits its own podcast episode at, at some point if we if we feel inspired to do it. But we um, could. <laughs> I wanted well, to give the, you that opportunity. Those two MP3s are available now. So yeah, and they are they are we'll very. We'll do this follow up question then from Dale. All right, you want to start with that one. All right, so Dale Hagwood of um, well of Boone, North Carolina, at the time he submitted this, now he lives down here, he's one of our students, asks a question about the PCA Human Sexuality Study Committee uh, report. And he says, uh, what do you think of the part of the report that notes that men struggling with same-sex attraction um, should not automatically be disqualified then from leadership? Does leadership in this sense necessarily mean ordained leadership or just leading a Bible study and participating in the life of the church? And under what conditions, if any, would you think it appropriate for a man struggling with same-sex attraction um, be able to hold any sort of leadership in the local church? Thank you, Dale. Um, We take leadership just in terms of any place of authority in the church, so that would be in the classroom, uh, but particularly as an office bearer, a teaching elder or ruling elder or a uh, deacon. We're going to define leadership in that way. So in what, under what conditions would it be appropriate for a man struggling 
with same-sex attraction. Now, the report does say that it does not automatically disqualify them from leadership. And I think that's an important distinction. Is there any of us who are ministers or office bearers who do not struggle with some besetting sins? Obviously, some are worse than others. But struggling with sin means I call it sin, I recognize it as sin, I immediately uh, confess it, uh, repent of it, and I've, I take steps to mortify it. Uh, and so if, if we put it, you know, we could take that with heterosexual lust or with uh, pride or envy or whatever. Um, in the examinations, what we want to see is, well, how are you dealing with this sin? But if a person says, well, yeah, I'm struggling with it, and this is basically you know, who I am uh, and I can't change, uh, or, yeah, I can change, but then what, what tools have you used to put this sin to death, uh, and what kind of progress have you made? If you're making progress, we might want you to you know, wait another year. Let's see if you continue to make that progress. So you have to take each person. But there has to be a commitment to the power of the resurrection by which we are born again to the indwelling of the believer by the Holy Spirit. As our confession says, progressively uh, working in us that we die increasingly to sin in conformity to the image of Christ. And so struggle recognizes a vain, uh, not a vain, an ambiguous term, but at it automatically disqualify, I think that gives us uh, a place for some pastoral, uh, pastoral wisdom. So. Yeah, I think that's sufficient. Thank you for the question, Dale. Now let's dive into the, the main body of our questions for faith and practice today. Uh, we have a, a group of questions here from Isaiah Groom of Aldergrove, British Columbia in Canada, and uh, they're, they're treating of different matters of family piety and Sabbath keeping. And the first one's a basic one. It's one that we've answered in, in various ways before, but it's a good one to revisit. Is there an element of Christian liberty regarding what is or is not appropriate activity on the Lord's Day? Can we play games with the body, like card games or board games? Can we watch movies with fellow believers? Is it just about being different from the rest of the week? That is, if I don't watch movies or go for hikes the other six days of the week, is it right or okay to do those things on the Sabbath with believers? Thank you, Isaiah. Um, it's an important question, and I think it helps us get to the issue of why we do anything uh, in the area of necessity or mercy on the Sabbath. Uh, when the Isaiah 58, 13 says that we're to turn our foot from doing our own, uh, our own way, seeking our own pleasures, and speaking about these things, uh, that's referred to as the recreation clause because the standards then say that we are not to uh, pursue um, our work, our recreation, our conversations about our work and recreation. So we get in this area of, well, let's take somebody who has children, and this is often where we hear this. Uh, what do I do with my children to help them get rid of energy? Or what do I do to be sure that I uh, can be alert for evening worship? And the, in my book, the, I put forth a principle, and I think if we would just use this, um, 
we would be saved a lot of problems, and that is whatever the activity is, whether you do it for yourself or for your children, the bottom line is, am I doing this, and does it enable me better to keep the Sabbath? The primary keeping the Sabbath, then, are public and private worship. And so we should be committed, unfortunately today, increasingly our churches are getting away from a second service, but we should be committed to two services and committed to uh, family and private activities with respect to the means of grace. Uh, then if I take a nap, am I taking a nap because I'm bored and don't want to do anything else? Or am I taking a nap because I know that I need this to be refreshed for evening worship, and I need it to go into the next week to serve the Lord well. And so then I don't sleep away all those hours, but I get uh, a necessary rest. If I play with my children, is it simply to play, or am I playing with my children even as I'm doing that, talking to them about the Lord, about the family, um, as they're getting some type of exercise? We used to simply take ours for walks. And on walks, we would do catechism review, and we could do uh, play games, look at things that God made, or tell stories uh, about God's work in our family, which, of course, little children love. Now, I didn't get out and throw the ball with my son. I would say that that's a matter of liberty if a man can do that and promote the purpose of the Sabbath, which is not simply getting some if you can do something that not only gives a, a physical release but promotes the purposes, obviously that's preferable to just going out and getting a physical release. And so that principle uh, is very important. So uh, then Isaiah, we apply that. It doesn't matter what you do the rest of the week. Uh, it's not about being different. It's about being devoted. We look at the Sabbath. Uh, the Puritans called it the market day of the soul. Uh, we can look at it as a vacation. You go on a vacation, um, you seek to get rid of everything else so you can simply be about the purposes of the vacation. So they said in Elizabethan England and Stuart England, there were these uh, market cities, uh, and you'd leave the farm, you'd go there, and you'd leave your work behind, and you devote yourself to the purposes of the market day. And so the fourth commandment is actually giving us uh, one day in seven to be devoted to uh, the worship, uh, the glory of God, and our own edification and enjoyment of Him and of Christian fellowship. So the reason we don't do things is so we can devote ourselves to those other things. And, of course, our standards are quite clear with respect to vocation and recreation. So we get to a card game or a board game. Uh, does that activity promote the purposes of the Sabbath? So with children, if it really is a game that helps them with memorization of Scripture or of catechism, that's very different. Uh, our son was at a certain age, and you asked, them, they, you asked a catechism question, the answer was always God or the Bible. So he had a, a Lincoln log set, and so I said, Look, let's go let's go to the mission field. We're going to build this mission station. We put a couple of people inside, and I said, you catechize these people. So, yeah, we're playing a game, but the purpose of the game was to get him to focus on his catechism, and it worked remarkably well. Now, the same then with a video. Uh, we have a number of good Christian videos, and there's nothing wrong because they're, they are promoting the purposes of the Sabbath. But simply to get together for a movie night, 
on the Lord's Day evening with fellow believers would, I think, be contrary to the Sabbath. Now, let me... Um, Go ahead, Zach. You've checked these off. Yeah, let me. um, This is another follow up kind of hitting on the same theme from Isaiah. When does the Sabbath begin and end? Is it sundown to sundown, 12 a.m. to 12 a.m.? When you wake up and go to bed, does it matter? We've talked about this before, kind of cultural, contextual application. We keep time by culture, not by the Bible. Uh, Because the Jews kept their time evening to evening, there's nothing sacrosanct about that. And we know that because the Apostle John used Roman timekeeping. Uh, to uh, chronicle the events in the life of Christ, and particularly the last week of Christ. So if we lived in a culture that all of the other six days were governed by sunset to sunset, then, in fact, that's how your days are governed. There's nothing to live in a culture that you've got midnight to midnight, but one day a week now we're going to be really weird and do this uh, sunset to a sunset. No, we govern it by where we live. And in fact... That's often a cop-out then, sunset to sunset, and it's a bad witness. You know, one of the few public witness testimonies we have right now to our neighbors is is public Sabbath-keeping. And I think it's very important that we uh, stick to the cultural time. And I think um, where I've seen this uh, most—this is a strong word, but destructively applied, this evening-to-evening kind of principle carried over and put out of place— in uh, out of context in our culture is uh, wanting to go get food after the evening service at church and go to a restaurant. And Where I've seen it is when the Super Bowl or the World Series is on at night and suddenly, well, my Sabbath was over when church was over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if that becomes known, but... I, well, they were on Facebook with it. Oh, you know, there you go. The um, But the going to get food thing, yeah, yeah, you're making them work when you're there. But what you don't realize about restaurants is in order for them to make that pizza at 7.30 p.m., they have had to have been there since about 1 p.m. just making sure everything's up and running. And if you weren't asking for that pizza at 7.30 p.m., then they're not going to be there at 1 p.m. to get everything up and running for Good you point. and anyone else. Good point. Now, that, that it's engaging in some casuistry and, and getting down into the weeds, but I think if we're not precise, then— No, it's really not it's, because it's not uh, these people don't have a Sabbath, and so they're not going to be— Waiting to go to work when the sun goes down. You know, something that has been really interesting with all the shortages in restaurants. I mentioned this to you the other day, Dr. P, and it's just a little rabbit trail. I've noticed even places like Arby's and, and chain restaurants have been closing on Sundays, not for religious convictions, but because they can't get enough people to work all the shifts. <laughs> and they say, all right, well, we're just going to shut down the whole store on Sundays. Now, why do they pick Sundays in South Carolina? Why not Mondays or Thursdays or whatever? It's because Sundays is still around here, I think, probably the least trafficked day at these fast food restaurants. That That is my hunch. It well, has to be a market force. They, they lose no money. Yeah. They lose no yeah, money. Yeah, they're not really going to lose If you're anything. open seven days, you're going to have the same amount of customers, and they're going to spread it out. Same yeah. with, with the retail Anything stores. else. Yeah, with anything else. That's right. Although, with internet shopping, that has... Uh, that has probably affected retail stores. Anyway, we're getting off into uh, some serious rabbit trails there. Um, next question, this actually uh, from another listener, but it's related to Sabbath, and she writes that she and her fiancé, getting preparing for marriage, are getting into debates on the application of principles, for example, discussing what activities are worshipful for the Sabbath. We've already talked some of that. As we prepare for marriage, where is there room for a wife to disagree with her husband? on specific applications of biblical principles while still submitting to him and following him. 
That's a great question. It's a very good question. Um, and I'm so happy that as you and your fiance are preparing for marriage, these are the very important conversations uh, that you should be having. Uh, so we have to distinguish between uh, uh, a, a wife's conscience and her submission. So uh, let's go back to this uh, previous question. Let's say that uh, uh, a wife thought it would be okay to play a board game with Christian friends or with the children later, uh, and the husband didn't. Um, he's not lord of her conscience, and so he's not going to come at her from that direction, but he is her spiritual head. And so he then must set the tone for the family. The thing about headship, uh, it's not to be uh, autocratic, unilateral. No, we, we discuss things as you two are doing. But at the end of the day, if you can't come to uh, agreement by discussion, the head has to make the decision. Now, if it's a non-principal thing, like where are we going to go on vacation, well, then the husband loves his wife will go where she wants to go for vacation if you can afford it. But if it's a principal thing, even both of them have a, a moral principle at this point, he has the responsibility to lead his family according to his conscience. Her conscience then is not defrauded, but she must willfully submit to his leadership in terms of, of how the family would be conducted on the Lord's Day. I have a follow-up on this. Let's say the husband comes to the conclusion that he doesn't want to play Monopoly on the Lord's Day. But his wife uh, doesn't share that conviction, and he says, as a spiritual head, for better or for worse, says, you know, I really am I'm not going to do this, but you're welcome to play that with the kids. Well, he's... Should she play it? Or should she recognize that even though he's not going to come down and say, don't play this with the kids, she should recognize, you know, it would be, it would be better for me to submit to his spiritual impulse here, his inclination. But he didn't give her spiritual leadership. That's his fault. I know, I know. That's why I said for better or for worse, he gives that allowance. How should she she, as a good wife respond? He gave her the allowance. He'll answer for that. But how should she respond? She's free to respond according to her conscience. But how should she? Not what can she, but how should she? govern her conscience. Okay. I think that uh, uh, he put an undue weight on her. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, that's the theoretical. I mean, he's responsible for the decision either way right. and, in this uh, situation. But this is not a matter that is something that, you know, she really thinks is not a sin. She really thinks it's not a sin. And he has basically said that by saying, you know, it's kind of like you're saying, well, uh, I'm not going to drink a glass of wine, but you're free to do so. That's the category you put it in. Yeah. Well, anyway, that was very interesting. Thanks for... Thanks You're for bearing in the weeds with me. Deep today, Zach. Well, you know. All right, our next question is a transition question. Going back to Isaiah Groom, uh, it, it deals with Sabbath, but it also gets into family worship. He has a couple of questions on that. Is family worship necessary on the Lord's Day? Let's define what family worship is, and then let's talk about whether or not we need to do that on the Lord's Day. Okay. Uh, by family worship, which uh, two places in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we are instructed that not only are we to be involved in Uh, public worship, but in private and family worship. So private worship is where you read the Bible, uh, pray, meditate, you might sing. Uh, Family worship then is when the head of the household, if it's a normal household, but 
the father, if it's a single mother household, then the mother, if the father's gone on a trip, it's the mother, uh, assembles the family at the best appropriate time for that family to uh, read the Bible uh, and uh, pray together and perhaps sing. Um, some families will do catechism review at that time as well. That, I believe, is a biblical requirement that we should strive for every day. Now, we recognize, particularly as children get older or as uh, a father's schedule uh, is it's sometimes quite um, complicated, that we might miss times. Uh, my wife and I have, after the children have been gone, have done various approaches to try to get more consistent. We would the normal time people do this is at meals. Now, some families will do both at breakfast, a very brief prayer in Scripture, and then a, a more detailed thing at supper. Um, but the common practice has been to do it at the evening meal uh, when the children are there, the family's there. Uh, but when our children were gone, and eventually it came in that, you know, uh, I'd, I'd be late or uh, she'd be tired or, or whatever. So we moved ours to early morning. And we've been able to be much more consistent. Only the mornings when she needs, because of health, to sleep in, uh, do we miss it. Uh, and so you need to get a time that's best for the family. It needs to be every day of the week. So now the advantage of the Lord's Day is because we are at times pressed uh, in our schedules that we, uh, in fact, advocate this in the book, we do have opportunity for an extended time of family worship on, uh, on the Lord's Day. So not only uh, is it something that's necessary, it is a great benefit that we're able now to spend more time with the family and reading and praying, uh, perhaps singing together, um, reviewing the, the sermon from the Lord's Day morning, um, uh, previewing the hymns and psalms before the service in the evening, kind of thing that we should also try to do Saturday night with the children or Sunday, uh, or Sunday morning, Lord's Day morning. So uh, that's family worship. And then Isaiah asked the follow-up question about length, content, and frequency. So I think I've answered the frequency the, the, and the content. There needs to, not just a devotional book, or just read some scripture and pray. Or read scripture and uh, have some conversation about that scripture. Uh, and at children's level, then try to address something to them out of it. Perhaps with you know the really little ones, you use a good uh, Bible storybook. Manner of Truth is just redone Catherine Voss's Bible storybooks without the pictures of Christ, so it's very reliable. Uh, and that has always been the classic. We used that with our children when they were very, uh, very small. Uh, Reformation Heritage Publications has their family uh, worship Bible notes, and uh, that's very useful for fathers that need some help, and so it goes through every chapter of Scripture, and there's some brief discussion of, of those things uh, as well. And then it's a good time to learn psalms and hymns and to uh, do scripture and uh, catechism and memorization. Dr. P., again from Isaiah, where does the regulative principle fit in, if at all, in okay. family worship? Good. good. And let me just say, time 
than Isaiah. It really depends on the children's attention span. Um, my wife and I, neither I was reared in a non-Christian home, and, and she was in a Southern Baptist family that did not have family worship. So, you know, we kind of had to plow our own furrows. And uh, we all we, we made the decision that, you know, brief was best until we got to know some Dutch families with their <laughs> children, and they would have 30-minute family devotions, and the children loved it, behaved in it. And the beauty of that was they're then able to to sit longer in worship, in corporate worship, because they have been involved in family worship. So, you know, there's no biblical requirement. Uh, I would think that, you know, an average 15 minutes to do these things that we've spoken of, as the kids get older, get more engaged, it, it might lengthen out. But particularly in the Lord's Day is a good time then to lengthen, lengthen it out as well. Now, as because it is, this is not a Bible study class. We, we can do, we should do that as well with our children, be teaching them the Bible and uh, reading them other good books and stuff. But if we're going to approach this as worship, then yes, it should be regulated by the regulative principle of worship, which means we offer to God in worship those things that he has revealed are acceptable to him. So that's why I focused on uh, reading and explaining scripture, uh, prayer, and, and singing catechetical recitation. But there are things that we don't do in family worship that are tied only to corporate or tied only to corporate worship, and that would be uh, preaching uh, and the sacraments, uh, in particular. Uh, so, when we want to do things like illustrate something with candles, don't do it in family worship. Just have some time with the kids where you. Isaiah has three more questions uh, dealing with polity, pastoral theology. I think I'm going to reserve those for a future episode, uh, so this isn't just the Isaiah And we are uh, going to get monthly regular again, folks. Yeah, I know, we make that promise every time. Um, <laughs> it's Zach's fault, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> the buck stops here with Zach. All right. But um, the re one reason I want to move on is because Lowell Ivy, a pastor up at Virginia Beach, Virginia, one of our graduates, asks a question that ties into the regulative principle, and I kind of want to continue pushing in that direction rather than shifting gears only to, to double back. Lowell asks, would you be able, and I think he's talking to Dr. Piper here, would you be able to clarify biblically, historically, and confessionally why the word, quote, psalms, end quote, does not exclusively refer to the 150 psalms of the Old Testament when it is used in our standards. And by standards, he's an OPC minister. He's speaking of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Larger and Shorter Catechisms as adopted by American Presbyterian churches such as the OPC and the PCA. Thanks, Lo. Uh, he's referring to Westminster Confession 21, paragraph 5, where having discussed prayer, in the two previous paragraphs, it now gives rest of the elements of worship. The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word and obedience unto God with understanding, faith, reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration where the receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, besides religious oaths and vows, solemn fastings and thanksgivings upon 
um, special occasions, which are in the several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. So the particular uh, phrase or clause is singing of psalms with grace in the heart. So the question is, does this uh, say that the confession is teaching the exclusive use of psalms? And there are some that say, yes, it is. And there are others will say, well, no, it's simply requiring the use of psalms, but not exclusively. Historically, um, there's some plausibility uh, to that second and also the methodology of the Westminster Assembly. There would have been men at the Westminster Assembly who did not hold to exclusive psalmody. So this is phrased in this way to actually meet both sides so that those that believe that psalm singing is exclusive can live with this language and those that uh, believe that psalms must be sung, but we may sing other things as well, may live with this language. The more I've looked at this, that's, that's basically what I think. Uh, in James chapter 5, when the apostle writes that if you're happy, sing psalms, Thomas Manton has an excellent discussion of that in his uh, sermon commentary on uh, James uh, and there in chapter 5. He says that linguistically, there's no way that one can interpret this uh, verb, sing psalms, to mean only the 150 psalms. Uh, the, the word simply means to praise God with musical accompaniment. Uh, he goes on to say, although I prefer uh, to sing the 150 psalms. And so there's a contemporary of the assembly who would say, no, psalmos does not mean or the verb form does not mean psalms exclusively, although that is my, uh, my preference. So there's two ways that a, a minister who's serious about the standards approaches this. One either says, as I understand the standards, um, and, and this paragraph is not exhaustive because we go over the directory of worship. Uh, they add the collection for the, uh, the diaconal offering at the Lord's Supper. They've got uh, a call to worship and other things there as well. So, so your point there is in the directory of public worship, which was accepted and drafted as constitutional by the same by men. the same men, includes certain elements of worship that are not delineated here, and right. so in twenty one five is not an exhaustive list. Right. So uh, one may either say I interpret this differently. No, I don't think that the, the assembly is requiring this, or even with strict subscription, the, the, the standards are not the Bible, and we never want to treat them as such. And thus we will recognize a man's genuine scruples of conscience, and that comes to bear when he has an exegetical uh, difficulty. And so uh, our dear friend and mentor, Dr. Knight, who uh, went with the Lord yesterday, and if you've not read uh, Zach's obituary, uh, please do so. But um, he for example, scrupled the part of the confession that gives an exposition of the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. It's the catechisms. What did I say? You said the confession. Oh. But it's the, it's the catechism. The well, that's where the exposition of the Lord's Prayer is. Yep. And uh, he says, I believe that doxology is biblically accurate, but I don't believe it's there in Matthew chapter 6. And so I would 
uh, scruple this, that I don't think that this is the proper exposition. So that would be the other approach, that I agree with the regular principle of worship. I agree that we should sing only those things that God reveals to us to sing, but I disagree that it has to only be psalms. When you say we should sing only those things which God reveals to us to sing, you mean not necessarily the text, but the kinds right. of songs. I believe that God yeah. reveals that we may sing hymns. Yep, hymns, songs, psalms, and spiritual songs, which some brothers um, define as three kinds of psalms contained in the Psalter, and other brothers uh, understand to be more expansive than the 150 psalms. Let's stay on the same theme and go to number nine. All right. Since we're dealing with worship. Yeah, no problem. Greg Starnes of Clover, South Carolina, asks, I need some clarification on the prohibition against images. I understand that an image of Christ, a picture or painting, would be the clear violation of the regulative principle of worship, but what about symbols of the Trinity or Christ, some of which are really only Greek letters, IHS, Alpha Omega, etc.? A simple cross on the wall. And what about candles and crosses on the communion table? And he gave some examples to us by email, pictures of what he was thinking. Would all of these be violations of the regulative principle of worship if they are displayed in the sanctuary or preaching hall during a worship service? Thank you, Greg. Uh, No. Uh, Words are symbols. And so a word, J-E-S-U-S, is merely a symbol that brings to our mind the reality of this person. So if we had IHS... Um, which is Jesus, HS, I don't remember what that stands for now. Oh, Son and Savior, IHS, Jesus, Son and Savior, or AO, the Alpha and Omega, those are not uh, visual images of the triune God or of uh, any of the persons. So even on the Trinity hymnal, and of course they, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church adopted the a report penned by John Murray about images. So obviously they, they and he did not think that the triangle on the front of the hymn book, that becomes a symbol, and a symbol is like a written name. So those are not violating it. But now across on the wall is going a step further. This is now a visual symbol, not of a name, but of a work. And this is why that historically the Reformed and Presbyterian have said no, not inside the place of worship. Now, on the top of the building, to signify to the world this is a place under the cross, there's been a broader disagreement about that. I know when uh, Reformed Seminary uh, built its beautiful new chapel in Jackson, and my wife and I were the first people to be married in that chapel under Dr. Smith's instruction there was no cross inside but there was a cross on the top that simply designated this as a christian meeting place or remember the first time i was in seoul korea and my friend said look out the window at night and literally hundreds of red crosses all over the city where every church had this because often the churches were in apartments and uh, multi-rise buildings you never would have guessed it was a church so i think that's a bit different but in the place of worship Uh, I would not want to see a cross on the wall either. Um, Let's go into his next next question then. Yeah, we um, I did have some offline conversation with Greg about candles. Oh, let me go right. Let me go back to candles. That's important. No, um, candles 
anything on the communion table outside of the communion, a tray and a goblet, or maybe the Bible, I think should not be there, period. And candles are taking on a religious liturgical symbolism at that point, and so I would uh, surely uh, not want candles on. We've all seen the golden, golden crosses on, on the communion table. So, no, I, I would, um, and I don't like flowers on the communion table either. It's not a flower holder. It's a communion table. You know, Dr. Piper and I actually might differ on this. I, um, I have come to the conviction after reflecting on it over the last couple of weeks in response to Greg's questions and some back and forth by email that the open Bible on the communion table, um, there's no mandate to have that there, and it not being mandated, um, I don't see it as appropriate furniture for, uh, for the place of worship, but I'm not going to... That's why it disappeared. <laughs> uh, but see, furniture is not mandated. Uh, but there's no use for it. We don't read from it. It just a, sits there. It's it's, it's decor. It's decor. No, it's not decor. It's a statement. Yeah, We're decor is to a the statement. Bible is the word of God. Well, decor is a statement. It's one thing. It's the Bible. It's not a candle. That's a man-made. This is where Doctor Piper and Zach diverge. Anyway, we'll move on. Only one of two places. <laughs> that and well, we won't get into the other thing. But it has to do with stuff in worship again. Is it a violation of Scripture, the regular principle, or any of our Reformed confessional standards for churches to observe a liturgical calendar? That is, Advent, Christmas, Lent, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost, etc. Even if there is no strict or absolute prohibition against it, are there still other valid reasons for churches refraining from doing so, historically speaking? Was there a uniform rejection of, li- of the liturgical calendar by the majority of the Reformers, or was it considered by some to be a Christian liberty issue? If it was originally a Roman Catholic tradition or invention and rejected by the Reformers, why is observance of the liturgical calendar so prevalent among many Reformed and Presbyterian churches today? And how did a Roman Catholic tradition get introduced into and accepted by Reformed traditions that had historically rejected it? Greg, I've been asking that question for the 24 years I've lived in Greenville, South Carolina. It's the first place I've ever come where you had churches that really were committed to the regular principle of worship that would have uh, sometimes Holy Week uh, every day, Bible study, Monday, Thursday services with the Lord's Supper, uh, Good Friday services, well, the Lord's Supper was typically on Good Friday service, not I'm just telling you what some have done here. Oh, That's really? I, just, I told you what they were doing. Others then. Oh, wow. They Good did. Good Friday okay. with the Lord's Supper. Good Friday or Maundy Thursday, huh? So, and even using this language, uh, particularly Maundy Thursday. Um, so I don't understand it. Uh, no, our standards, I believe, at least implicitly, uh, are be quite opposed when you read about uh, the instructions on the Sabbath. And that was clearly the commitment of the Reformed Presbyterians uh, from Calvin and Knox onward until the 20, late 20th century. Um, the Dutch church at the Synod of Dort allowed some liturgical calendar because there was a pushback from the magistrate about uh, losing uh, holidays and stuff, and they actually deliberately compromised, thinking that we will, you know, do away with this down the road. None of the people, as far as I, well, I can't say none. Anything you read about the Synod of Dort, this was not something that anybody was happy about in terms of the theologians that were there. But this always happens when you make a compromise; it never goes away. And so then, now in the churches in the 
Continental Reformed tradition, um, it's in their book of order, and it is required that you have these special services and special days and special um, sermons. The requirement of it is clearly, in my opinion, contrary to the regular principle of worship. A church can have liberty if they wanted to have a service, say, on Thursday to highlight the um, uh, ascension, um, as long as it wasn't mandatory. Now, I, I, I'll grant that. I, wouldn't, I still wouldn't attend it, and I would never pastor a church that has such a thing, because the Sabbath celebrates the full-orbed work of our Savior from his incarnation, his obedience, his uh, uh, crucifixion in our place for our sins, and his resurrection and ascension. Now, what we need to do, who hold to this then, is not uh, is to be careful that we're preaching the whole counsel of God. Uh, two weeks ago, I got in my Christ and Salvation class, and I asked the question I always ask, how many of you have heard a sermon on the ascension? And out of the whole class, I maybe had two or three hands. You see, this is where we who hold to the regular principle and don't have a calendar are sinning by not preaching the whole counsel of God. Our people need to hear regularly in our preaching of the great events of uh, our salvation. So we've got to pick up the slack at that point. The other thing I would say, and this is what you know, even the strictest of people like Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, people come to church on the Sunday nearest what's called Christmas uh, expecting to hear a sermon on Nativity or the Incarnation. They're coming on the Sunday that actually that is is accurate. We do know the date of of which Sunday of the, the resurrection of the year the resurrection occurred, and they come wanting to hear a sermon on the resurrection. They ought to hear it because as Martin Lloyd Jones says, only two times a year people come to church thinking what you're going to preach about. Take advantage of that uh, pastorally. Uh, we don't have to let our freak flags fly and say, "Well, I'm just committed to textual expository preaching, and I'm not going to do that." No, that's I think being pastorally. Unwise. I mean, a man's free not to do that. But I, I really am greatly disturbed. And so now what's happening? Uh, because nothing stays static. So in the last 10 years, we have PCA churches, Presbyterian Church of American Congregations, practicing Lent. People going up to uh, their churches and getting ashes on their forehead, a pagan observance. Uh, and that's what's going to happen. Uh, so you're, I think your instincts are right, Greg. I want to take a Gabe Williams of Port Orange, Florida here, because this is kind of a timely question. He says, Dr. Piper, <laughs> I recently heard you described in a somewhat disparaging way as a theonomist. As with all labels and categories, there are camps within these things, and these camps often have very different views. What he means by that is there are different kinds of theonomists. Would you be so kind as to explain the difference between a, quote, stone him for collecting firewood on the Lord's Day, end quote, theonomist, versus a, quote, shouldn't God's law inform all of our decisions and processes, end quote, theonomist? Thank you for your ministry and work. <laughs> Thanks, Glaive. It doesn't surprise me. Um, I'm called all kinds of things in a disparaging way, and if people knew my heart, well, they would know that they've got anywhere to begin to get to how they could disparage me. 
Um, but your question is very important, and, and we cannot, you know, we, we can't use these kind of questions in examinations or anything else because uh, the words are way too broadly defined. I'm sure the person that meant to disparage me wanted to say that I was a Reconstructionist who believed that we would bring in the that the goal of the church was to bring in uh, the Mosaic uh, Republic with a state that uh, kept um, all of the laws and sanctions of uh, civil Israel, uh, or even more so those that believe that's the goal, that we want to, we're going to reconstruct society, and that's the goal of the church. Well, I'm committed to the spirituality of the church. I believe that the role of the church is for the gathering and perfecting of the elect. I would encourage people in my congregation to get involved if they had gifts and calling in the political sphere um, and try to apply Christian principles uh, to that sphere. Calvin has the wisest discussion at the very last chapter of the Institutes where he brings these two things together. He says, when the Mosaic civil sanctions are in harmony with the sanctions of natural law, the state is wise to implement them. So if all nations were putting to death uh, inveterate adulterers or rapists, now the Bible is very clear about murder, and none of us should disagree with the capital penalty for murder, but a kidnapping or whatever, um, then it would be wise but not biblically required. And so if we were seeing a, a real revival and reformation in our country and we had magic, not only would we stop all the perversions of marriage and uh, sexuality and abortion, but we would also seek to implement, as our country had, even resisting some of the uh, excesses of Europe and, and Britain, uh, almost every state had blasphemy laws. Almost every state had what's called blue laws with respect to uh, the Sabbath. And I would glory uh, if we had uh, anti-blasphemy laws and, and modesty laws and uh, laws coming out of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments that would, uh, would protect us. So if that makes me a theonomist, uh, then you can throw that at me and that piece might stick. But it's only, a, I believe... Well, the difference is I don't believe that sanctions are necessary, but I do believe our criminal code uh, should be based on the last six commandments because criminal code has to deal with actions, not thoughts or, or whatever. And to the degree that we can enforce uh, non-blasphemy and, and Sabbath keeping, that uh, I think that also uh, would, would be good. But I love the law of God. I'm in my Psalter reading now, I'm in Psalm 119. Uh, and uh, the law, God's law is indeed precious and a great means of grace. Well, that brings us up on our time. We have a senior sermon to attend to this morning in chapel, but that's a great question, Gabe, and Dr. Pipe's answer leaves us open for lots and lots of follow-up on anyone who's interested in uh, plumbing the depths there of, uh, of Dr. Pipe's so-called theonomy and his convictions. But, you know, based on what he said, I don't think he's any more a theonomist than George Gillespie or the Westminster Divines, and he's certainly not um, in the Reconstructionist camp, which would be more of a 20th century phenomenon. Dr. Piper, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to our next one in November, where uh, hopefully by that time I'll be a father of six. 
Well, I am a father of six now, but our sixth child is due at the end of the month. So our listeners, if you take a concern for me personally, then please be praying for my my dear wife, Jocelyn, and for me as we expect to welcome our sixth little Groffy into the world. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.